Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, there was a lawyer who stood up to put Jesus to the test. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, it says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus responds by giving him the parable of the Good Samaritan. When Luke recorded in verse 25 that this man was considered to be a lawyer, sometimes it's easy to look at that and misunderstand precisely who this person really was and what his role in the society really was and why it was so important. In general, we think of lawyers today as individuals who assist others when there is an issue or a dispute that needs to be settled in a court. Lawyers are generally hired for the purpose of assisting and aiding us or other individuals to be able to interact with or interface with a court in order to help in the resolution of a criminal or a civil matter. That's generally what we think of when we think of a person who is identified as a lawyer today. But back then, that's not what lawyers did. That's not who lawyers were. Lawyers had the responsibility of creating laws. That's what lawyers did in the time of the Lord Jesus. You see, there were several circumstances in life that were not precisely covered by the Mosaic Law. And considering these circumstances as they would arrive, there would need to be some way of resolving the concern of how we should address or deal with a circumstance that has not been addressed before in the Law of Moses. And so the lawyers had that role, they had that purpose. Now the lawyers go way back to the time of Babylon, several hundred years before the time of the Lord Jesus. When the Jews were in Babylon, they had recognized that they were there because they had sinned, and so they tried to create a lifestyle or a way of living to ensure that they would never come within the boundaries of possibly violating any of the commandments of Moses ever again. And so they came up with a set of laws that they would live by that would govern their lives. And there were different schools of thought in terms of how they would live their lives, how they would govern their lives, by what rules or by what laws would they live by? And all the schools of thought had an agreement that they certainly would not disagree with Moses, but that they could disagree with each other. These persuasions or these schools of thought were recorded in what we call the Mishnah. And then about 150 or 200 years before the time of the Lord Jesus, the ministry of the Lord Jesus, there was a radical decision that was made that the people who headed up these schools of thought, who were recognized as the Sophers, did not really disagree with each other. It was a radical decision that was made, and so a new commentary 
was developed called the Gomorrah, which was the attempted reconciliation between the differences of the Soferers, the heads of the different schools of thought in terms of how a person should live their daily lives. So there was a sincere attempt at reconciling the differences, and the composition of the Mishnah and the Gomorrah became known as the Talmud. Now, during the time of the Lord Jesus, this was relatively well codified. The Gomorrah was relatively well codified at this time. There was a relative belief that the differences were all reconciled to a reasonable degree. However, given the new circumstances that people would be confronted with in their daily lives, there needed to be a mechanism to institute new laws on top of the ones that had already existed previously in order to help us deal with our lives as they have evolved over the course of time through changes in society, changes in culture and economy and governments, things like that. And so the lawyers had that role. The lawyers were there for the purpose of instituting these new laws. Now, of course, there was no real official enforcement power to ensure that people would live in obedience to these laws. And so if people did not want to obey these laws, they certainly would not be punished. There was no official enforcement power. It was a social pressure. It was a religious pressure. It was a cultural pressure based on the society that had evolved in this way. And, of course, I talk about this subject in a lot more detail in the program that I did titled Do Not Do According to Their Takanot. In that program, I describe this history with a lot more detail, and so I would like to encourage you to listen to that in order to gain greater insights with regards to this historical context. However, with reference to Luke chapter 10, I would just like to focus on this introduction to the story of the Good Samaritan so that we can gain some greater insights with regards to the conversation that is taking place and what the Lord Jesus is actually communicating to the people who are there. Again, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, it says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for the lawyer to ask him what he shall do in order to inherit eternal life or obtain eternal life, you have to understand that their definition of eternal life was very different from the definition of eternal life that we understand right now, that the Lord Jesus revealed to us throughout his ministry and, of course, how it has been revealed to us through the Apostle Paul. That eternal life to them meant something very different. We usually think of it as once we physically die, then we are going to have eternal life with God. We're going to live forever in the kingdom of heaven. Well, to the Jews, that is not how they thought of eternal life. That is not what they believed eternal life was really about. To them, if you were born as a child of Abraham, then you would have eternal life, not because of your obedience or disobedience to the commandments, but because of your identity according to the promise and the blessings that were given to Abraham. And so they looked at eternal life very differently. They did not look at it as we look at it today in the context of being able to live forever in heaven. Their perspective of eternal life had more to do with the regeneration of the law in our lives. In other words, when a person studies the law and understands the law and applies the law in their lives, then in that way they are regenerated. They experience a life that is different from the life that they had previously. And this life, because it is invoked and directed by the living God, it is considered to be an eternal life, a much better quality of life. That's how they looked at eternal life. Let me give you a really good example. In a prayer that was said back at that time, after the reading of the scriptures, every Sabbath in the synagogue, 
I have a copy of this prayer. This prayer says, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who in giving us a Torah of truth has planted everlasting life within us. Blessed art thou, O Lord, giver of the Torah. It was through the giving of the Torah to us, the Torah of truth. It was the giving of the law, the law of Moses, and the truth contained therein that we would have everlasting life implanted within us through our study of the Torah, through our observance of the Torah, through our applying the Torah in our daily lives. That was his understanding of eternal life. So when he asks the Lord Jesus, how can he obtain eternal life? That's what he's really asking. He's not asking how he can live forever. He's asking about eternal life from his perspective. And so in verse 26, and he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he quotes the law. He says that this is what I understand about eternal life. This is what I understand about how I can live my life today in the divine way that my God wants me to live so that I can experience his eternal life with me and within me right now. That's what his perspective was in terms of how he defined eternal life. So the Lord Jesus asked him what was written in the law, but he did not directly ask him what does the law say about eternal life, because technically the law says nothing about eternal life. That is important. This is an assumption that the lawyer is making. It was an assumption that everybody was making. It was a very important assumption. But nowhere in the law did the Lord ever say that they would have eternal life by their observance to the law. It was what they believed. In verse 28, Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He says that, however, what he is saying is that that is what the law says. You have answered correctly that this is what the law has said. Do this and you will live, but he did not say do this and you will have eternal life. He said do this and you will live. That means according to his definition of eternal life. That is that he can enjoy or maximize his opportunity to enjoy this life that he has before him. And how did the Lord define that when he gave the law? He defined that in the context of the flesh, not in context of the spirit. He said that if we were to obey all of the commandments, we would be blessed in our flesh. This was well described in Deuteronomy chapter 28. I would encourage you to read through that if you have any question about that, that all of the blessings, all of the promises that the Lord offered to us if we were to live in complete obedience to all of the commandments had to do with maximizing our opportunity to indulge our flesh. That's what he offered. You certainly will live. However, you will not live eternally in the context of you will be able to live forever after you physically die. You will be able to live today in the physical context of enjoying your life right now. Now, in context of the Lord Jesus' ministry, his ministry was to lead a person to the point of understanding that they cannot live in obedience to all of the commandments. And so, of course, they will never receive any of the blessings that the Lord has offered to them in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 28, because no one will obey all of the commandments so that they could go before the Lord and demand payment or compensation for their obedience and repentance. 
The Lord Jesus spent most of his ministry explaining that to individuals that there was no way that they could ever enter the kingdom of heaven because they would never be obedient enough in order to go before the Lord and suggest that they were holy and righteous and had a place there. Again, the Lord never promised that they would have a place there if they were completely obedient. But the Lord Jesus was using this at least to get people to understand that regardless of whether you thought you were able to accomplish the law or not, you weren't able to accomplish the law. And so regardless of what the Lord was offering in return or offering in compensation for your obedience, you'd never get it anyway. That would never matter. The Lord Jesus is not saying here that if you obey all of the commandments, you will have a place in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. That's not what he is referring to, because that obviously would be in contradiction to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law never offered eternal life in heaven, never did. The Lord Jesus is certainly not exaggerating on the Mosaic law and offering eternal life in heaven either. He's only responding to the context and the understanding of the lawyer who he is speaking to. And the lawyer understood this. The lawyer understood this. He understood it because he followed it up by saying in verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, he didn't talk about life in heaven after he physically died. He followed it up by saying that he understood what the purpose of Jesus's ministry was by saying, do this and you will live. He understood that Jesus was challenging him, saying, look, if this is what you want to believe, then believe it. If this is what you want to do, then do it. Don't mess around. Don't play around with this. If you are going to love the Lord your God, then do it. And if you are going to love your neighbor as yourself, then do it. I mean, really do it. But of course, the Lord Jesus had already put out a significant amount of effort to explain that no one could ever really do it, not to the satisfaction that would be required, so that a person could stand up and say that they were holy and righteous. That certainly was never going to happen. And so the lawyer tries to negotiate, in a way, with the Lord Jesus by asking him, who is my neighbor? Because if he can define who his neighbor is in a different way than is obvious then he could suggest that he obeys this commandment in a certain respect and does not have to obey this commandment in another respect because there are others who are not his neighbor. The Jews believed, the lawyers believed, the Pharisees believed, that the neighbors that were referred to by the law of Moses, the neighbors, were the people who also tried to live in obedience to the Mosaic law, who were also Jews, who were also Israelites, who were subscribing to the laws of the Pharisees. That's what they taught. That was their way out of considering everyone to be their neighbor. Instead of considering everyone to be their neighbor, they could just consider those who also subscribed to the same religious beliefs and philosophy that they did. They would love those people, but they would not have to love anyone else. In other words, anyone else, they could just disregard. Who cares about anybody else? There's no need to be kind to anyone else because there was no obligation in the law that would require them to do so. Therefore, they would not be committing sin by either not helping someone who is not part of their religious persuasion or perhaps by taking advantage of someone who is not part of their religious persuasion. And so that's why the Lord Jesus follows this up with the story of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 30, the Lord Jesus replied and said, A man 
was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest, that is an individual who had direct responsibilities in the temple, that's who a priest generally was understood to be. And then he follows it up in verse 32. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The Levites were considered to be priests as well in a certain way. However, the Levites were considered to be the civil authorities who had responsibilities outside of the temple. Some of them did have responsibilities within the temple, but most of them were outside of the temple resolving disputes and conflicts and other issues in communities throughout the land of Israel. That's what the Levites did, not the lawyers. The lawyers came up with new laws to obey. The Levites were responsible for civil order and the resolution of disputes. Now, both the priest and the Levite ignored the man who needed help. Who was this man? Well, who knows? But for the Lord Jesus to suggest that he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho would suggest that he probably was a Jew. Most likely he was a Jew. If he was a Samaritan, there would be no reason for him to be in Jerusalem. Samaritans would not go to Jerusalem, first of all, because they were not welcomed in Jerusalem, and second of all, because they didn't want to go, because they wanted to assert their beliefs that Mount Gerizim was the official place of worship of the living God. And so a Samaritan would not have been in Jerusalem. And so quite likely, this was a Jew who was robbed and even stripped of all of his clothing and left there half dead. The priest passed him by. Technically, he would be considered to be a neighbor of the priest, assuming that he was a Jew and perhaps assuming that he was religious in nature. Being in Jerusalem and going to Jericho, he was probably in Jerusalem for a religious purpose of some kind. It's just an assumption that I'm making and that also could be imputed within the story. But either way, the priest left him there and did not help him. And the Levite left him there and did not help him. Now, the lawyer could look at that and say that, well, we don't know if the man was really a Jew and we don't know if he was a Pharisee in terms of his beliefs and in terms of the way that he lived. And so he may not really have been a neighbor. So legitimately, the priest could walk away and not help him and still be righteous before his God, still fulfill the commandment of loving his neighbor as himself, because this man may not have really been qualified as being his neighbor. The same thing for the Levite. The lawyer could easily say, according to the beliefs of the people, according to Pharisaical Judaism at this time, that this man was not necessarily a neighbor, and so for the Levite to leave him, He would not be violating the Mosaic law. That would be considered to be acceptable. And then in verse 33, the Lord Jesus says, But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, this would definitely be a major offense, a major offense or offensive is what I'm meaning to say. This would be majorly offensive. This would be very offensive to the Jew, to the lawyer, because a Samaritan is doing something for a Jewish person without receiving anything in return. 
this was serious. This was a serious matter because the Jews did not want to have any sense of obligation whatsoever to the Samaritans. That was an important theological perspective or persuasion of the Pharisees in the time of the Lord Jesus that if you ever had any dealings with any Samaritans, if you ever had any engagement or any contact with any Samaritans, you would always do so on the basis of trade, but never on the basis of doing anything graciously for each other because of the animosity that existed between the two. And of course, I explained this animosity in the two programs that I did on the history of the Samaritans, and I would like to encourage you to listen to those programs in order to have a better appreciation for what I'm describing here, that the Samaritans would generally do nothing for the Jews, and the Jews would do nothing for the Samaritans, Although they could do business with each other, they could come to a mutual agreement with regards to trade, but never as an act of mercy. And so for the Samaritan to do this may look good to the Samaritan. However, to the Jew, the Jew would look at this and say, I've got a real problem with this, because this would mean that the man would have a sense of obligation to the Samaritan, and that is considered to be religiously and culturally unacceptable, according to our beliefs, according to what we believe about how a person should live in this time in the land of Israel. That was a strong conviction that they held to. And so for the Lord Jesus to bring this up in this way presents a greater opportunity for offense, but also exaggerates the importance of showing mercy to other people and the fact that even a Samaritan can show mercy to a Jew, even though a Jew would definitely never show mercy to a Samaritan, but at the same time may also feel justified in not showing mercy to a fellow Jew either. That's what the Lord Jesus is speaking about to this lawyer. He's speaking to him on a deeper level, to the very nature of his heart, that he's not really looking at everyone as his neighbor to love them as himself, but that he is looking at some people that he could love and other people that he could hate and feel justified in his hatred and in his refusal to help someone who obviously would be in need, especially in a situation such as this. And so in verse 35, the Lord Jesus went on to say, On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. And so compounding this issue of the Samaritan being gracious and merciful to who was quite likely a Jew, was compounding the issue of this offense to a Jew, that it was the Samaritan who demonstrated that he wanted to live in obedience to the commandments of Moses by loving his neighbor as himself. This, again, would be a greater offense to the Jews because the Jews believed that the Samaritans were not willing to live in obedience to the commandments, and yet they really were wanting to live in obedience to the commandments. They embraced the law of Moses and held to it. And so for the Samaritan to do this was a great offense to the Jews, especially to those who were not willing to themselves. And so in verse 36, he then asks, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And so regardless of who you want to define as being a neighbor, who proved to be a neighbor, who was a neighbor, regardless of who should have been a neighbor, or who was a neighbor according to Pharisaical Judaism, but look at the situation as it is. 
Look at it from the practical reality outside of your theological perspective. You may be a great theologue, and the lawyers were the theologues of that time. But that is not how we measure these things. We don't measure these things by theological persuasions. We measure them by practical reality. That's what's of importance. And so who was it who proved to be a neighbor? Don't worry about trying to figure out who is the neighbor, but see who actually demonstrated that they were a neighbor, who proved that they were. What does the lawyer say in verse 37? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Now, why would he say that? Why couldn't he just say it was the Samaritan? Because that was so offensive to the Jews that he could not bear. He obviously could not bear the pain and the suffering of admitting that a Samaritan would have been merciful when he may not have been, when a priest may not have been, when a Levite may not have been, just because of their religious definition of who is a neighbor. It would be too painful for him to acknowledge the truth of who he is, of how wicked he is, that he would consider leaving somebody like that who was in desperation, even if he had the means to help them. How dare he? How dare he treat people that way? That is what he would have to confess to, that that was his true attitude, if he was to acknowledge that it was a Samaritan who helped this man. Now, of course, this runs even deeper than that. And so I would like to encourage you to listen to the programs I did on the history of the Samaritans to get a better understanding of how deep this really goes and how deep this really is, because it is much more involved than just that. But for now, I want you to understand that it was too painful for him. It was obviously too offensive for him to acknowledge that it was a Samaritan. In verse 37, and he said, the one who showed mercy toward him, then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Again, if you are going to live in obedience to the Mosaic law, then do it. Don't play around with this. Don't mess around with this. If you are going to live a life of repentance and obedience, then do so. And do so with all that you have, with hope that, of course, one day you will come to recognize that you will have absolutely no hope whatsoever of entering into the true kingdom of heaven and experiencing the true eternal life of all eternity. You will never experience that outside of the grace and mercy of God. And you will never realize your need for it until you recognize your depravity, your insufficiency, and your inability to be righteous and holy as the law defines. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you